Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Early on in the Ethics of Ambiguity, you'll see that Simone de Beauvoir talks quite a bit about the Marxists. And before we go on to look at what she has to say, we really need to stress that Marxism is not a monolithic, you look at a Marxist over here and know everything about Marxists over here sort of phenomenon. And so it's always important to contextualize by thinking about the situation in which an author is writing if they're talking about Marxism. I think from particularly for an American audience where there's never really been a strong Marxist movement and where they've been rather underrepresented, you could say, in the humanities in general. There's been many people on the left, but most of them not really Marxists. It's important to understand that the Marxists were a, a significant, a serious force, not just politically, not just economically, not just socially, but also into intellectually in the time that Du Beauvoir is writing in France, in France in particular. And she also traveled to places to observe how Marxism played itself out in practice over the course of her life. So when she's talking about the Marxists here, she means people both outside and within the academy who have a pretty substantive way of looking at things and a program in mind, politically, culturally, socially. So when she's considering the Marxists here, she is examining their point of view in relation to the issue of freedom. And you might say by doing that choice and ambiguity as well. And she's doing a little bit of compare and contrast and also a bit of criticism. Now, the Marxists criticized the existentialists as philosophy of freedom that was essentially enshrining bourgeois values and virtues on the one hand or allowing too much scope for freedom on the other hand, all of which is really kind of illusory. And, and at the same time, there was you know a lot of back and forth between the Marxists and the existentialists since they did recognize some points in common. She thinks that Marxism and existentialism share in common, in particular, this notion of situation. And so we should talk a little bit about that. We can talk about a general human condition, right? But we always exist in determinate situations in which we have to make decisions. We don't have entire information about the whole world and everything that we're choosing. There's a lot of ambiguity on multiple levels. This is the nature of, of human beings. This is, this is the human condition where human beings exist. And the situations themselves are not from like a panoply or book that has all of the 12 or 48 or 246 situations of human beings listed. 
There's new ones coming into being all the time. And so both existentialism and Marxism are recognizing this. And they're also recognizing what she calls a separation. If we refer back, what does that separation mean? The separation of the human being as they are, as they exist from what they would like to be from perhaps their solidarity or connection with other human beings. There's always a disconnect. There's always a disjunction. And insofar as that disconnect is felt or registered, there's also that's within us as well. So the ideal that we're not is in a certain sense within us and also separated from us. And we could come up with all sorts of other examples of this. So we don't need to belabor that point. So she has a lot of useful things to say about this issue here. She says that we meet this in Marxism, which from one point of view can be considered as an apotheosis of subjectivity. That means like it's, it's really embodying subjectivity. She says that Marxism, like all radical humanism, which that's what a Marxism is, at least, you know, until there was some, some anti-humanist Marxism in French thought later on, but the Marxism of her time is definitely radical humanism. Marxism, rejects the idea of an inhuman objectivity and locates itself, she says, in the tradition of Kant and Hegel, viewing human subjectivity as something essential, something important, history as important, intentionality as important, coordination, development, those things as important. She also says, unlike old utopian socialism, the socialism of the, the Enlightenment of the 1700s and 1800s, which confronted earthly order with archetypes of justice disorder and good things, values that you could take for granted as objective. Marx does not consider that certain human situations are in themselves and absolutely preferable to others. So we don't use those notions as you might say starting points, right? What do we do instead then? Well, how does the Marxist understand things? The needs of people. Now you could say, well, there's a reduction to economic needs. And that is true. Although within the Marxism, as we see it develop of her time, there's more than just economics at play. There's also the need for recognition. There's the need for, you know, a certain kind of security, you might say, for being involved in decision-making, right? So the needs of people, the revolt of a class. Marxism, you know, in a certain sense is kind of a universalistic philosophy as a social philosophy, but it's always coming back to who is being exploited, whose labor and life is being consumed for the benefit of who else? How are these processes, which don't have to be set up this way, how are these processes constituted? How are they reproduced? That's part of what Marxism is focusing on. And they call that class back in, in classical Marxism, the proletariat, the working class, the people who are more and more impoverished, more and more treated as just machines or animals, not as human, more and more finding their consciousness framed within the situation that they're and so the revolt is an action against us. It blows things up, including the way to look at things. And these, as she says, for Marxists, these define the aims and goals. She says it's from within a rejected situation in the light of this rejection, a new state appears as desirable. So, you know, stop taking capitalist economics and, and social organization for granted. And you say, well, wait a second. Why do things have to be set up this way? And this is a, a common phenomenon, right? People attain consciousness of their situation. And then once that's attained, then they can begin desiring and therefore acting differently. 
So she says, only the will of human beings decides. It's on the basis of a certain individual act of rooting itself in the historical and economic world that this will thrusts itself toward the future and chooses a perspective where such words as goal, progress, efficacy, success, failure, action, adversaries, instruments, and obstacles have a meaning. This gives them a meaning. Then certain acts can be regarded as good and others as bad. So, so far it looks like there's a lot of connections between existentialism, which also rejects any a priori values or goods and says we have to discover these as human beings and Marxism. It looks like Marxism is just detailing a way in which this happens, right? And she says the goal and meaning of actions then is defined by human wills. Here's where the difference begins to arise though. She says, in Marxism, if it is true that the goal and meaning of action are defined by human wills, these wills do not appear as free. So that is, so as we say, some serious daylight between the Marxist doctrine and the existentialist doctrine. The existentialists say that our wills are indeed free. They're not free in the sense that we can like automatically choose to undo everything we've done in the past or any, you know, as we say here in America, anyone can become president, right? Your will does not actually extend to that. You can aspire to it. That's certainly something within the scope of your will. But the existentialists were never committed to, you know, crazy notions of free will. They just say we actually, we are, we exist as a freedom. We have choices. Even if they're choices that seem rather restricted, they are still choices within situations. The Marxists say, yeah, it's really an illusion. What's really going on here is class consciousness or what they called, you know, the ideological superstructure, the realm of all, not just ideas, but also institutions like philosophy, art, law, culture, all these are really being determined by the economic basis as it works out its contradictions, as new developments arise. You don't really have a free will. You might feel like you do, but you, you don't really. So she says, these are the reflection of objective conditions by which the situation of the class or the people under consideration is defined, right? So in the present moment of the development of capitalism, the proletariat cannot help wanting its elimination as a class. Now you might say, well, why, why would the proletariat want its elimination as a class? It means your life no longer sucking, right? Because that's what it means to be the proletariat is you have very little control over the conditions of your life. You're ranked very lowly in the social structure. Your, yourself and your children will have very little opportunities and options and you get your life sucked out of you for the benefit of other human beings who you may never actually see. Why wouldn't somebody who becomes conscious of that as a fundamental human dynamic say, that sucks, let's not do that anymore. That is what's at stake for the proletariat. The question that Du Beauvoir is concerned with is, does the proletariat make any contribution in deciding this on its own? Or is that just, they happen to become aware of their situation and by a sort of mechanical, there's no way out of it necessity, they now desire this and they now work for this because the Marxists are depicting it that way. So wills are merely the reflection of objective conditions, or as she'll say a little bit later, revolt, need, hope, rejection, desire are only the resultants of external forces. And then here's a wonderful line. The psychology of behavior endeavors to explain this alchemy. And I like that because, you know, in a lot of cases, Marxist theory is kind of like alchemy. It's very interesting, but you're not sure, you know, where things are actually connecting with supposed realities that we're looking at in such a hard nosed way. 
right? There's a lot of idealism, you can say, in classical Marxist analysis. Now, she goes on and she provides an existentialist critique of Marxism here in this place. And this is quite interesting. She points out a few important factors that are being left out. So the first one is that freedom and choice are still involved. How are freedom and choice still involved? Well, it's not as if you just read the Communist Manifesto and then start marching off, again, like, like some sort of insect or machine. You have to make a lot of choices over and over again. So she provides you with some examples of these. In order to adhere to Marxism, in order to enroll in a party and in one rather than another, to be actively attached to it, even a Marxist needs a decision whose source is only in himself. So, you know, this is a typical existentialist movement to say, yes, you find Marxism to be the correct way to view things. Yes, you are choosing on that basis, but you have chosen the Marxism that you're following. And you can say, well, I was convinced by the data. I was convinced by reading the, the manifesto or by reading Kapital or by having it explained to me in this class or in this party session. And you can say, yes, you found that compelling because you chose to find it compelling. On some fundamental basis, you had to make a commitment and that's okay. Just acknowledge that there's nothing outside of you that actually made you choose this. That ultimately it comes down to you perhaps saying something like, I don't like seeing people suffer unnecessarily. And Marxism seems to be a way to understand and address that. That's fine. That's coming from you, right? You acknowledge it, you take credit for it. That means that freedom and choice are still involved. She goes on and she says this autonomy, and she uses that word autonomy there, is not the privilege of the intellectual or the bourgeois. And this is, you know, again, targeting Marxist ideas. The bourgeois is somebody who can be detached from things. They can feel like they're free. The intellectual is enjoying this privileged life as opposed to the poor working proletariat who can't stop working to think about these sorts of things. They get home and they're so tired. They just want to put their feet up, have a beer, watch TV, and then, you know, hit the sack so they can get up the next day and do it all again. She ends up saying, no, the proletariat gets to decide for itself what kind of proletariat it's going to be. How do we know this? Because there's different kinds. She says it can let itself be lured on as happened to the German proletariat. Who does she mean here? I think she's actually talking about not just things that were happening prior to the, the Nazi regime and, and World War II. I think she's actually talking about the proletariat in that regime. And she's also talking about the proletariat in, in the German states in general. And then she talks about America. She says, it can sleep in the dull comfort which capitalism grants it, as does the American proletariat. I mean, there's a sign right there of the, you could say, the weakness of Marxism in America. And why did the proletariat sleep or doze off? Well, because it's being offered all sorts of consumer goods. It's part of a big social contract in which everybody's boats are going to rise, provided, of course, that you're, you know, of the right race, because there are many people being excluded and terrorized on, on that basis at, at the time, right? So the proletariat itself decides what it's going to do, what it's going to be. So it's, it's, there's still freedom there. And then she says, in practice, Marxists actually do appeal to uh, human beings as free agents. She says, they don't deny freedom. The very notion of action would lose all meaning if history were a mechanical unrolling in which we were only a passive conductor of outside forces by acting. So that's one thing, by committing oneself in action, also by preaching action, the Marxist revolutionary asserts himself as a veritable agent. He assumes himself to be free. 
And then she goes on and she points out a third feature, right? So in acting, in preaching action, in advocating, and then in valorizing, we could say. She brings up the examples of moralizing in the ways of, you know, talking about people, taxing them with cowardice, lying, selfishness, veniality, right? They very well mean to condemn them in the name of a moralism superior to, to history. So when we're saying bad things about people, these people should have stood up for the strike and they didn't. What a bunch of gutless bastards they are. You're actually saying they had a choice. They could have done things differently. They have freedom. Same thing when you're praising people and you're saying courage, abnegation, lucidity, integrity, right? These are all good things. She says, well, you know, it could be said these are used for propaganda, they're expedient language. This is to admit that this language is heard, that it awakens an echo in the hearts of those to whom it is addressed. You can't praise without there being something that you think there is to be praised. Even if you're praising falsely, just for propaganda purposes, you're still assuming freedom as a Marxist. So she's saying the Marxists are in contradiction with themselves, that the existentialist position or some sort of fusion of Marxism and existentialism would be more accurate portrayal of the human condition, which is one of freedom and choice, right? Within situations. And the last thing that, that she brings up is that the Marxists also condemn philosophy of freedom on a different sort of ground. She says, they declare authoritatively that the existence of freedom would make any concerted enterprise impossible. So any sort of committed or coordinated action, we can say. That, that's what concerted here really means. The idea here is that if you can't count on people's wills being basically determined, you can't get the Marxist project of revolt, of class raising, of seizing the means of production, all these sorts of things. You can't get that off the ground. Why not? Because anybody at any moment could decide to follow their whims because that's what freedom really comes down to is you can decide to do things differently. So if you're supposed to strike, for example, maybe you show up, maybe you don't, or maybe you cross the picket line, which would be even worse, right? Or you write a letter to the editor in the newspaper and you're like, this strike is, is awful, right? That's possible for people. And the Marxists are worried about this. She says that according to them, if the individual were not constrained by the external world to want this rather than that, there would be nothing to defend him against his whims. You know, this is really sort of a basically, you could say it's a mistaken understanding of human motivations. By opening the door to freedom, we're not just saying any possibility is substantively possible. We're saying things are possible. People choose between them, right? But they choose between them within situations. And so, you know, she goes on and she says, Marxist thought hesitates. It sneers at idealistic ethics, which don't bite into the world, but it's scoffing signifies there can be no ethics outside of action. Not that action lowers itself to the level of a simple natural process. It's evident the revolutionary enterprise has a human meaning. And insofar as it has a human meaning, it involves freedom and choice. And the existentialist position, therefore, according to de Beauvoir, cannot be gotten rid of by the Marxist critiques of it. So she's saying that the Marxists are getting some things more right than other philosophical positions, but that existentialism really understands the situation more adequately. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. 
Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.